Okay, excuse me. Uh, so I think we should start now. My name is Charles Small, and I'm the coordinator of the seminar series Anti-Semitism and Comparative Perspective, which is based at ISPS here at Yale University. And um, today, Michael Oren will be speaking. We're honored to have him. And just to let you know, um, to remind you that next week, February the 2nd, at the same time, at the same place, Ishrad Manji will be speaking um, on Muslim anti-Semitism and why it's not about Israel. Uh, so I'll be, she'll be speaking here at 4.15 February the 2nd. So it's a great honor and a privilege to be able to introduce Michael Oren to you. Michael Oren is a senior fellow at the Shalem Center in Jerusalem. Um, and he's the contributing editor of the journal Azor. He's the author of no numerous studies on the history and politics of the Middle East and has written extensively for publications such as the New Republic, Commentary, the Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on. He's a graduate of Princeton and Columbia University and has received fellowships um, in the United States um, in the U.S. Department of State and Defense from British and Canadian governments. And in Israel, he has been the Lady Davis Fellow at Hebrew University and a Moshe Dayan Fellow at Tel Aviv University. Um, Dr. Oren is the author of a very well-known book and an important contribution called The Six-Day War, the, the, sorry, Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, uh, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2002. The book was widely praised by reviewers, including the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, The Economist, and so on. Michael Oren was raised in the United States and moved to Israel and served as a paratrooper in the IDF, in the Israel Defense Forces, and, rank, and reached the rank of major. He was a veteran of the Lebanon War and the Gulf War, in which he participated as a liaison officer with the U.S. Sixth Fleet. He also acted as a representative for the Prime Minister's Office to the Jewish underground in the Soviet Union and as the Director of Interreligious Affairs for the government of Itzhak Rabin. So the list goes on of his uh, significant accomplishments. So it's a great honor to, to have him here. And today he's going to be speaking, the title of this talk is called Arab Anti-Semitism, an Indigenous Phenomenon or a Foreign Import. So, Michael. Thank you, Charles, for that graceful and gracefully short introduction. It did go on for a bit, my institute prepared it. And it's a great honor to be participating in this ISPS seminar series on anti-Semitism. A great delight to see a lot of familiar faces here. A great pleasure to see faces at all. I've been teaching at Yale for the last two weeks. I have 200 kids in one of my classes. I haven't seen any of their faces yet, because the entire time that I'm talking, they're scribbling away. All right, so just look up and I'll see your face. I'm charged today with talking about Arab anti-Semitism, or more broadly, Middle Eastern Muslim anti-Semitism, because we have to talk about Iran as well, not, a Muslim, not an Arab country, of course. It is a daunting and huge topic for me, because as we'll see, it's not quite one topic. It's, in fact, many topics. I can give an entire course on the topic. Um, let me just begin in a very non-academic way by with two short vignettes from my own experience with the whole subject of Arab and Muslim Middle Eastern anti-Semitism. The first story, um, Charles mentioned that I was a 
paratrooper once upon a time in, um, in Lebanon. In the summer of 1982, during the Israeli siege of Beirut, we had an interesting scrap with a, uh, with a unit of the Palestine Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a popular front for the liberation of Palestine. It was a, a Marxist group, uh, not an Islamic fundamentalist group at all. Um, and after the scrap, we entered the, the headquarters of the PFLP in a suburb of Beirut. And uh, there was the usual stack of Kalachnikovs in the corner and, and Claymore mines, but also sprinkled around this headquarters rather generously were numerous copies in Arabic of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and numerous Arabic translations of uh, Hitler's biography Mein Kampf. Uh, most poignantly, uh, plastered to the wall was a large swastika flag and next to it a colored portrait of Adolf Hitler. What these items were doing in the headquarters of the PFLP, this purportedly Marxist group in downtown Beirut, was at the time a mystery to me. A few weeks later, uh, literally a few weeks later, I had the, uh, the privilege of, of studying Lebanon and Lebanese history and Palestinian history in, in graduate school. And one of the courses I taught was by uh, Professor Mark Cohen, who's giving a lecture right above us. So if this finishes early, you can all run up and hear his lecture. One of my truly great professors, Mark Cohen. Um, and, and as a result of my, I studied with Mark, I studied the history of Jews uh, in Muslim lands, particularly in the Middle East. And as a result of being in this group, in this uh, lecture, um, I was exposed to a historical debate, which had begun just about that time and has continued ever since, debate about whether Jews under Islam fared better, worse, or similarly to Jews under Christendom, uh, particularly during the Middle Ages. And there was one school of thought that said that, that basically the Jews uh, fared no better uh, than, than uh, under Islam than they did under Christianity, certainly in the medieval period, uh, and another school, an opposing school, that said that, uh, that uh, Jews actually fared much better under Islam. Islam was far more tolerant of Jews uh, than Christianity. And I, I approached this question with a pretty open mind. I hadn't decided one way or another until I read a book by another one of my professors at Princeton, then the uh, great and late uh, historian S.D. Goitein, who wrote not one book, but a series of five books, a classic, if you have a, a month to kill, I strongly recommend all five of these volumes, called A Mediterranean Society. Uh, five volumes that Esti Goitein had pieced together, um, literally in an archaeological way, from hundreds of thousands of, um, of documents, pieces of documents, fragments, from the Cairo Geniza at the Ibn Ezra Synagogue in, uh, in Cairo. Um, where Jews had deposited slips of paper, even bus tickets, uh, uh, laundry cards, uh, receipts that had the name of God in it, because in Judaism you cannot throw away a piece of paper that has the name of God on it. And from these hundreds of thousands of fragments, S.D. Goitein was able to uh, reconstruct uh, to, an, in a, to an immense detail um, Jewish life in the uh, neighborhood of Fustat in Old Cairo between the 8th and 11th centuries. And what, what emerges from these five volumes of a, of a Mediterranean society is the image of a Jewish community which, on one hand, lives side by side with Muslims. There's no ghetto in this area. Um, there's a tremendous amount of integration. There's a tremendous amount of fluidity between the two societies. But, but what emerges unmistakably from the documents is the fact that the Jewish community suffered under Islam. It suffered poignantly under Islam between the 8th and 11th century, which is widely regarded as one of the golden ages of Jewish-Muslim cooperation. They suffered in particular because of the imposition of the poll tax, 
known as the Jizya, which I will talk about in greater length shortly, every year the Jewish community in Cairo, as Jewish communities throughout the Muslim world, had to pay a tax to enable them to continue living there. And that tax was no minor tax. Every year, this Jewish community in Fustat, Old Cairo, went into some type of really profound um, malaise and panic over whether it could meet the imposition of this Jizya tax. And finally, a last little vignette, I am now literally supposedly Monday, I'm facing a deadline, about to turn in a book, the largest book, on the comprehensive history of American involvement in the Middle East. What this has to do with Arab anti-Semitism is a good question. But interestingly enough, in the course of my research on the annals of American involvement in the Middle East, I came across repeatedly documents in American archives, um, archiving, uh, detailing the instances of Arab and Muslim anti-Semitism. Now, there's a, there's a sort of a conventional wisdom uh, out there, certainly in the Middle East, that uh, Arab anti-Semitism did not exist before the advent of Zionism, sort of the middle part of the, of the 20th century, certainly not before the creation of the State of Israel. And yet here I am coming across American documents from the 1840s where the State Department has to rally to save 12 Syrian Jews who have been arrested in Syria and tortured for allegedly perpetrating a blood libel, for taking the blood of a young Syrian boy and making matzah out of it. This is in 1840. And then in 1880, the administration of Rutherford P. Hayes had to rally to save the Jews of Morocco from large-scale pogroms that were occurring in Morocco at that time. And then finally, World War II. Um, November 1942, Operation Torch, the American uh, invasion of North Africa. Great many documents there um, illustrate the fact that there, at the time of the invasion, there were widespread pogroms against the Jews, uh, and dozens of Jews were killed in Casablanca and Algiers, and that American GIs had to intervene physically to save these Jews from being killed by their Muslim neighbors. And in one celebrated case, um, American soldiers entering the city of Casablanca were attacked by Arab Muslims because the rumor circulated that the stars on the American jeeps were in fact the stars of David, and that these were Jewish troops coming to attack the city. Interesting documents. Clearly, when we talk about Arab or Muslim anti-Semitism, we are not talking about a new phenomenon. But neither are we talking about a static phenomenon nor a singular phenomenon. We're talking about a form of prejudice which has, in some respects, has deep indigenous historical and theological roots in the Arab and Muslim world, but in other ways is of relatively recent provenance and of foreign import to the Middle East. To gain any true appreciation of the nature and scope of Arab anti-Semitism, we first have to start with the basics. We have to start with Islam. What does Islam tell us about Jews and the relationship of Jews to the Muslim Ummah, or the Muslim greater community? Relation, relationships between Islam and the Jews gets off on a bad foot uh, with, the, with the career and life of the Prophet Muhammad. When, he, when Muhammad, Muhammad flees from Mecca in 622, he flees to a neighboring city of Medina, which is largely under the control of some large and influential rich Jewish tribes. Prior to this time, when Muhammad was thinking about making a new faith, he designed, he made this faith very much, he designed this faith to resemble Judaism, so much so that uh, early Muslims were uh, implored to or exhorted 
to observe the Yom Kippur fast, to pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And Prophet Muhammad assumed that the Jews of Medina would embrace him as the new and last prophet. They did not. They rejected him. So Prophet, prophet Muhammad went to war against the Jews of Medina. He changed the direction of prayer to Mecca and Medina, and uh, he changed the Yom Kippur fast to the Ramadan fast. Um, and the Jews of Medina were defeated by Muhammad. Um, and so the Jews in, early, in the earliest Muslim writings are depicted as not as inherently evil, not as satanic, but simply as an enemy, as people who did not accept the mission of Muhammad, did not accept his message, and people who, like other peoples who stood up to Muhammad, who didn't accept the Islamic mes message readily, were defeated, much like uh, the Byzantines, but on a far, far smaller scale. Jews never threatened uh, the Islamic empire uh, the way the Byzantines did. The early Islamic uh, sources record a covenant of Medina, which is sort of becomes the, um, the foundational or fundamental document setting out the legal relationship between Jews and Muslims. The Covenant of Medina says simply that the Jews are recognized as what, it, what is known in Arabic as Ahlu al-Kitab, people of the book. That is, they have a Bible, much like the Christians, they also have a Bible, and therefore they cannot be forcibly converted. They cannot, they're not given the choice between becoming Muslims or dying. That was a choice that's placed only before pagans. In fact, they have to be protected. They attain a legal status known as, in Arabic, as dhimmi. They are protected individuals. You cannot hurt them physically for not being uh, Muslims, nor can you in any way impair their property. But there is also the imposition of a poll tax. And the notion of a jizya tax appears for the first time in these early Islamic writings in the Covenant of Medina. That covenant is broadly expanded um, about a hundred some odd years later uh, with the conquest of Jerusalem in 717 uh, by the second caliph, by Umar. Uh, prior to the time the Jews have been largely excluded to, from the city by the Byzantines, Umar let them come back. He let the Christians remain. But he also established a series of what are known as sumptuary laws, which set out a, a legal status, a very well-defined legal status for Christians and Jews, for the dhimmis, for the people of the book, to ensure that they would remain in what is broadly called today a second-class citizenship status. What did this mean? Actually, how did this second-class citizenship find expression? Jews were not allowed to ride on animals, and Christians, by the way, were not allowed to ride on animals that, animals that would make them higher than Muslims. They were not allowed to build synagogues or churches that were higher than mosques. And, and there's a, a stricter interpretation of the covenant of Umar, which says that they're not allowed to build new churches or synagogues at all. It's a, it's a restriction that was observed far more in the breach. Um, e, Jews are not allowed to bear witness against Muslims in court. They are not allowed uh, to proselytize, which was certainly not so much a problem for Jews, but certainly a problem for Christians. Uh, proselytizing Muslims is a capital offense. You lose your head for it. Um, you are not allowed to marry a, if you are a, Mus a Jewish or a Christian man, you're not allowed to marry a Muslim woman and make her, bring her into your religion. It's okay if you convert. Um, and in some very strict interpretations of the uh, covenant of Umar, of the sumptuary laws, Jews and Christians have to also dress in a distinct way. They have to dress in a way. The notion of a, of a yellow star, for example, was an Islamic in, invention, not an early medieval Christian invention. Sometimes it's not just a, a distinct dress, but also wearing 
items that make noise, such as a bell or a wooden clapper, that announces to the Muslims that a dhimmi, that a legally inferior person is in their presence and that they should act accordingly. From early Islamic forces, uh, sources, there uh, emerge two images of the Jew. Uh, the Quran relates to the Jews as uh, untrustworthy. You're not allowed, you're, it exhorts Muslims not to make friends of Jews. It um, advances the case that the Jews falsified the Bible. That the Bible that the Jews possess today is in fact a, a, a fraud, a distortion. The Talmud is a fraud of a fraud. Um, and then in the Islamic legends or hadith, there are references to the Jews, uh, some of which are not particularly complimentary, one of which has gained extreme, um, um, you hear often today, and that is that the Jews are descendants uh, in some way of m monkeys and pigs. Um, and in its most, again, the most extreme sense, there's a, there's a call, there's a, there's a legend in the hadith in the, in the um, that says that at, at a certain time in future history that uh, Muslims will be called upon to kill Jews and that the Jews will take shelter behind, behind trees and rocks. And at that time, these very trees and rocks will call out to believing Muslims and say, listen, believing Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. We're going to hear shortly in a film um, how both this notion of monkeys and pigs and trees and rocks that call out for Muslims to kill them, how they have gained increasing currency in the Arab and Muslim world today. But it's important to see these negative attitudes and sumptuary lords to Jew against Jews in historical context. Islam in its formative period certainly was much more concerned with countering the theological and military threat posed by Christendom than it was with the Jews. The Jews were a mere gadfly at most for medieval Muslims. They are not deicides, the Jews, Islam says, and that's an important distinction from Christendom for the simple reason that God is not a human being and God cannot be killed. Over the course of the centuries, Jews in Islam live within the context of this tension. They are perceived as threats, yes, but very, very minor threats. They are protected by law, sometimes more or less. Sometimes they are subjected to persecution, especially during periods of Islamic revivals. Whenever there's an Islamic purit, purist movement that, that springs up in the medieval period, Jews are one of the victims of that movement. And yes, they are subjected to these sumptuary laws, which are severe, particularly in the matter of poll tax. On the other hand, Islamic history offers us almost no examples of Jewish of mass expulsions of Jewish communities. There are no very large-scale massacres. There are no blood libels. They are not blamed. Jews are not blamed for plagues. They are not blamed for other national catastrophes. They're not blamed for war. All of these charges were made with uh, alarming regularity against Jews uh, living in Christian Europe during the medieval period. Um, Islam, this is also important to point out, it did not, to the same degree as Christianity, depend on the vitiation and negation of Judaism. Now, classic, paranoid, myth-ridden, racially-based anti-Semitism enters the Muslim Middle East relatively late in the 15th century with the Ottoman conquest of uh, Byzantine lands and with the inclusion of large number of Christians within the Ottoman Empire. 
Over the next 300 years, anti-Semitic outbreaks in the Arab world can be traced, bar and large, to the influence of Christian clergy in diplom and diplomats. I mentioned the Damascus blood libel of 1840. The Damascus blood libel of 1840 was started not by Muslims, though it occurred under Muslim rule, under Ottoman rule. It was spread by Capuchin monks with the aid of a French consul general. Arabs also took their rising anxiety and fear of European conquests of the Middle East out on the Jews, especially those Jewish communities that had close connections with European imperial powers. That was certainly the factor in the 1880 pogroms in Morocco, Morocco and the backlash against the Jews in North Africa in World War II. In both cases, the Jewish communities were perceived, rightly or wrongly, um, as being the natural allies of the European imperial powers, and particularly of French colonialism. Another major source of Arab anti-Semitism was Nazism. Beginning in the 1930s with the rise of Nazism in Germany, uh, Nazism gains a, an immense amount of adherence in the Arab world. There was something about Nazism, its emphasis on military power, the way it can transform the weak into the strong, uh, the uniforms, the, the martial aspect of Nazism that, that, that gained a wide following within the Arab world. And all of a sudden we see it in, in numbers of Arab countries. We see fascist groups, green shirts, brown shirts, uh, the Young e Egypt Society, uh, the uh, Parti Populaire, Syrien, the PPS, all Arab fascist parties. Uh, we see pro-Nazi revolts with the outbreak of World War II in both Egypt and Iraq. And uh, with all this regalia and upheaval and pro-Nazi um, um, activity in the Arab world, the Arabs absorbed also a large amount of Nazi anti-Semitism. Um, one of the perhaps starkest uh, examples of the degree to which Nazi uh, images of the Jews were internalized in the Arab world was in the broadcast made by the Palestinian Grand Mufti, by Hajimin Husseini, who was uh, exiled from Palestine by the British, ended up in Berlin as a major propagandist for the Nazi regime, and had a series of publications and broadcasts in which he simply um, absorbed, he utilized all of the most notorious Nazi imagery of the Jews and spread it out to, and, and broadcast it, distributed to an Arab listenership and readership that was ready to receive these images and, and accepted them un unquestionably. After the war, um, several Nazi um, commanders and political thinkers, quote unquote, found refuge in Egypt and in Syria. And they worked in the propaganda ministries for the Egyptian and Syrian government. Um, certainly a watershed in the development and spread of Arab anti-Semitism was 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel. See this, understand this event perhaps from an Arab perspective. This was the first great post-colonial test of the Arab world. These are newly independent Arab regimes, and they failed this test egregiously. And the people who caused them to fail the test were not some major European power, but the remnant of a European people, uh, the vast majority of whom had been marched off to crematoria only a few years ago. Here they were, these remnant coming to the Middle East and defeating these newly sovereign Arab armies. It was an immense, an immense, unfathomable humiliation for these countries. And anti-Semitism provided a very convenient excuse for dealing with that humiliation. By the 1950s, in the 1960s, we see the emergence of more readily recognizable European forms of anti-Semitism within the Arab world. 
the protocols of the elders of Zion, the notorious Russian forgery that purports to show to be the minutes of a meeting of a Jewish cabal that is planning to take over the world. The first Arabic translation of the protocols, by the way, appeared in 1925, but it's only in the 1950s that the Egyptian government, the government of Gamal Abdul Nasser, begins to distribute it. The Saudi Arabian government begins to print it out and distribute it, along with copies of Mein Kampf, which becomes a very popular uh, book indeed. The image of the Jews as money grubbers, as manipulators, as morally decrepit, as weak on one hand, but also domineering and dominating the world, become prevalent in the Arab world in the 1950s. A personal story. I did my doctoral dissertation on Egyptian policy in the 1950s, and, and I was very curious to, to follow a story of a, of, a, of a young Egyptian reporter named Ibrahim Izat, and he was a reporter from, for, for Egypt's most prestigious weekly, it's still in circulation, Rusal Yusuf. Um, in uh, 1956, in the spring of 1956, Ibrahim Izat showed up at the Israeli embassy in London and said, I want to do a story about Israel. And the Israelis were so excited about that this leading Israeli, uh, Egyptian journalist from this prestigious Egyptian journal was coming to interview Israelis. It was extraordinary. So they, they rolled out the red carpet for him. They, they gave him an interview with Golda. They gave him an interview with Ben-Gurion. They gave him an interview with Teddy Kollek. They brought him around to Kibbutzim. They brought him around to the army. He came back to to Egypt, and he wrote a series of articles for uh, Rusal Yusuf uh, called in Arabic, Kuntufi Yisrael, I was in Israel. And these articles are simply a collection of every anti-Semitic European motif you can find. Um, the, state of, the title State of Israel exists to launder money for, uh, for world Jewry. It exists as a tool for world domination by this Jewish cabal. Uh, my favorite canard in, in this book was that kibbutzim are basically large houses of prostitution where Jews capture uh, young Arab women and force them into um, into, into prostitution. And this became a bestseller in the Arab world. This is in 1956. This is not, this is a, 50 years ago. Um, as we move into the 1960s, you see the um, proliferation of cartoon imagery about Israel, which is taken directly from Nazi motifs, from Sturmer cartoons. It's interesting that, that Israelis almost invariably in Arab cartoons appear as long-nosed, um, ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, certainly the ultra-Orthodox Jews is interesting because these are the very people who don't, not necessarily pro-Zionist within Israel, um, but these, the, the notion of the, usually a big-bellied, hook-nosed, ultra-Orthodox Jew who is plotting to take over the world, uh, these images begin to appear in Egyptian and Syrian cartoons of the 1960s. At the same time, after the 1967 war, actually even the height of the war, um, Arab regimes begin to spread the rumor that the Israelis could not have carried out this victory on their own because Jews are inherently weak, they're morally decrepit. They obviously had the, uh, the assistance of the British and the Americans, and the rumor goes out that the British and the Americans actually flew the jets that destroyed the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. Uh, while doing research for my book, on the Six-Day War, I had to interview a great number of people in the Arab world, in, in Egypt, Jordan, uh, in uh, the West Bank, in Syria. Um, just about to a man of the people I interviewed, they still believe that Israel did not fly those planes, that the Jews were, were physically, uh, that they were um, almost genetically incapable of carrying out the, the military, the sort of the aviational victory of the Six-Day War. Over the course of the 
ensuing 30 years, anti-Semitism in the Arab world uh, became a standard state-funded activity, what uh, my former professor Bernard Lewis called anti-Semitism from the top down. This state-funded anti-Semitism found expression in an almost constant flow of anti-Semitic articles, cartoons in the state-run presses uh, of Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Libya. A long list of historical calamities were ascribed to the Jews by these articles, by these, by these, news, by these, uh, by these movies, including, and this is a, a short list, uh, the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War, the outbreak of World War I and World War II, uh, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan, the toppling of the Ottoman Empire and of Tsarist Russia, the invention of chemical and biological weapons, and the triggering of the Great Depression. It's a short list. Starting in the 1990s, however, Arab anti-Semitism underwent one, not one, but several profound transformations. First of all, when it underwent the process of Islamicization, that's, you have to forgive me for the neologism, Islamicization, uh, Islamicization transformed um, the negative image that existed in parts of Islam um, into a major uh, concept within modern Islamic thought. Uh, and suddenly the Jews were perceived not as a minor threat to Muhammad, but the principal threat uh, to Muhammad, all but eclipsing the, the medieval Christians. Um, they were depicted as Muhammad and of Islam, as, as the mortal enemy, not just of Muhammad, but of all Muslims, and as the embodiment of a cosmic and satanic evil. There were now great emphasis placed on those Quranic and Hadithic sources that were critical of the Jews. Again, the image of Jews as descendants of monkey and pigs, the Jews as the target of someday, a future target of a general Muslim call to expunge the world of Jews. That's when the trees and the rocks will tell the Muslims where the Jews are hidden. Isla the Islamicization of a Arab anti-Semitism uh, spread from the Arab world into the world Islamic community, into Pakistan, into Malaysia. Some of my friends are reporters who work often in Pakistan and tell me that's basically all people talk about is their hatred of the Jews. Um, it was exemplified in 2003 by a speech by the president uh, of Malaysia, President Mahathir, who uh, before an Islamic summit meeting of representatives from Islamic uh, countries from around the world, um, claimed that a mere 12 million Jews were controlling the entire world by proxy and called on the world's 1.3 million billion Muslims to use their brains to overcome this mortal Jewish threat. And Mufahir got a standing ovation, a very long one in fact, from this International Islamic Summit meeting. Islamization of anti-Semitism also meant popularization. No longer anti-Semitism from the top down, in the Arab and Muslim world, but anti-Semitism from the bottom up. Among the beliefs that gained widespread credence in Arabic public opinion were that the Jews either in spread and or invented the AIDS virus, that they poisoned Arab wells and disseminated aphrodisiacs among Arab women to make them promiscuous or sexual suppressants among Arab men to make them indifferent. Jew hatred, though thoroughly indistinct from anti-Zionism anti now, had since grown to become almost an obsession 
in the Arab world. And within that obsession, there are several constant fixations on recurrent themes. The most prevalent of these themes is Holocaust denial. With innumerable articles and pseudo-academic um, tracks published and international conferences held in major Arab capitals to deny the existence of the Holocaust that ever happened. Um, films like Sophie's Choice and Schindler's List are routinely outlawed in the Arab world because they show a side of the Holocaust that didn't happen. Um, again, remember this old contradiction that Jews are sort of genetically weak and yet they're taking over the entire world. Um, that type, that paradox very much comes to play in Holocaust denial in the Arab world. Uh, the Holocaust, Arabs will claim, that had never happened, uh, but the Jews, because of their wickedness, had it coming to them. Um, the Holocaust never happened, but the murder of six million Jews enabled them to manipulate the world's conscience. Hitler never killed the Jews, but he was nevertheless a hero for crushing them. Um, and, this, and the Israeli press, every once in a while, a news item will make the front page where some Palestinian discovered in the West Bank bearing the name of Hitler. Uh, there was a very famous case about two years ago of an, a young Palestinian named Eichmann. Um, popular names. Another fixation and another focus of contradiction and paradox are the events surrounding 9-11. Uh, Israel launched attacks on the World Trade Center in order to make Arabs and Muslims look bad. So the rumor has gotten out, but at the same time, um, bin Laden is a hero for having carried them out. Um, or now, the war in Iraq, which the Jews, through their American dupes, have orchestrated in order to fulfill their own agenda of world domination because they're all powerful, but which also the Jews initiated because they were afraid of their destruction at the hands of Saddam Hussein. The Islamicization and, and the popularization of anti-Semitism has, in turn, served as a catalyst for heightened anti-Semitism on the part of Arab leaders and Arab regimes in response to this tremendous upheaval, this tremendous demand for anti-Semitism from within uh, grassroots Arab world. And so in recent years, we have seen both the Syrian and the Saudi governments issuing allegations of blood libel. These are official allegations of blood libel. Syria actually published a book uh, on the blood libel, on the history of the blood libel. Um, there has been the, a number of mini-series and programs on Arab television stations, um, most famously the Horse Without a Horseman uh, series, a 10-part series uh, on state-sponsored Egyptian television back in 2002, which was the televised, the dramatized version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. A similar program was slated to be broadcast on Jordanian television, but the Jordanians uh, took it off the air before it was broadcast more than one or two um, one or two uh, nights uh, from American and Israeli protests. Anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic motifs have become especially prevalent in the West Bank in Gaza. And they are, uh, they are spread not only by Hamas, not only by Islamic Jihad, but by the Palestinian Authority uh, through school textbooks, summer camps, uh, and in the official press and on the television. It is especially prevalent, especially present in Friday sermons that are sponsored by the PA, um, delivered by religious figures who are on the payroll of 
the PA. Um, I've brought one of these to show you, Avi, um, today, a short clipping from a Friday sermon that was given less than a year ago, I believe. Let's see the date on this. Um, by Sheikh Ibrahim Muderis, again, a very prominent uh, religious figure in the Palestinian Authority. Let's see if this works. فقد ابتلانا بأشد الناس عداوة للذين آمنوا اليهود ولتجدن أشد الناس عداوة للذين آمنوا اليهود والذين أشركوا وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله حذر نبيه وحبيبه صلى الله عليه وسلم من اليهود الذين قتلوا أنبياءهم وحرفوا توراتهم وفسدوا وأفسدوا على مدار عصور حياتهم وبقيام دولة إسرائيل ضاعت الأمة الإسلامية بأسرها لأن إسرائيل سرطان استشرى في جسد الأمة الإسلامية لأن اليهود فيروس يشبه الإيدز يعاني منه كل العالم على هذه الأرض تجدون اليهود وراء كل فتنة على هذه الأرض معاناة الشعوب وراءها اليهود اسألوا بريطانيا ماذا فعلت باليهود في أوائل القرن السادس الميلادي ماذا فعلوا باليهود طردوهم وعذبوهم وأجلوهم ومنعوهم من دخولها أكثر من ثلاثمائة عام متتالية من صنيع اليهود في بريطانيا اسألوا فرنسا ماذا فعلت باليهود يوم عذبوهم وطردوهم وحرقوا تلمودهم للفتن التي أرادوا أن يشعلوها في فرنسا في عهد دويس التاسع عشر اسألوا البرتغال ماذا فعلت باليهود اسألوا روسيا القيصرية التي استضافت اليهود فتآمروا على قتل قيصر فصنع فيهم المذابح المتتالية ولا تسألوا ألمانيا ماذا فعلت باليهود لأن اليهود هم الذين استفزوا النازية لمحاربة العالم كله يوم حرك اليهود عن طريق الحركة الصهيونية حركوا الدول لمحاربة ألمانيا اقتصاديا ومقاطعة البضائع الألمانية يوم حركوا روسيا وبريطانيا وفرنسا وإيطاليا فاشتد غضب الألمان على اليهود خاصة فكان ما كان في مثل هذه الأيام التي يحيون ذكراها اليهود اليوم وهاهم يقومون بما هو أسوأ مما فعل بهم في الحرب النازية نعم ربما قتل منهم من قتل وربما حرق منهم من حرق ولكنهم يكبرون هذه الصورة ليكسبوا إعلام العالم ومشاعر العالم اليهود فعل بهم ما فعل في أسوأ جرائم عرفها التاريخ ولكن ليست أسوأ مما يفعله اليهود بأهل فلسطين
اجراما ما فعل باليهود ولكن الذي يفعله اليهود اليوم على ارض فلسطين اليس اجراما انظروا الى التاريخ الحديث اين ذهبت بريطانيا العظمى اين ذهبت روسيا القيصرية اين ذهبت فرنسا التي كادت ان تحكم العالم اين ذهبت المانيا النازية التي ذبحت الملايين وحكمت الارض اين ذهبت كل هذه القوى الذي اذهبها سيذهب امريكا باذن الله تعالى الذي اذهب روسيا في يوم وليلة هو القادر على ان يذهب امريكا ويسقطها باذن الله ويسقطها باذن الله تعالى لقد حكمنا الدنيا وسيأتي يوم والله نحكم فيه كل الدنيا سيأتي يوم نحكم فيه امريكا سيأتي يوم نحكم فيه بريطانيا ونحكم فيه كل العالم الا اليهود اليهود لن يعيشوا في ظل حكمنا هانئين مستقرين لانه في طبيعتهم الغدر سيكون على مدر التاريخ سيأتي يوم يرتاح من اليهود كل شيء حتى الحجر والشجر الذي تأذى منهم اسمعوا حبيبكم صلى الله عليه وسلم وهو يحدثكم عن اسوأ نهاية لليهود الحجر والشجر يريد ان ان ينهي المسلم على كل يهودي I want to stress, that's on Palestine national television. That's not from Al-Manar, it's not Hezbollah television. And um, that, is, that, that broadcast is in no way exceptional. That is very common of the, uh, very, very indicative of your average Friday afternoon sermon um, through the auspices or under the auspices of the Palestinian Authority. Now confronted with this massive outpouring of willful obscurantism, hatred, and I don't think I'm going too far by calling it insanity, um, we have to ask the very basic question, why? Why is this happening now in the Arab and Muslim world? Now, one obvious answer that would be preferred by the Arabs themselves is that anti-Semitism is a reaction, a backlash to aggressive Israeli policies, the suppression of the Palestinians, the war in Iraq, which they claim patently serves Israeli interests. That might explain condemning Israel, but the word Israel didn't really pass the lips of Sheikh Muderis, did it? Uh, it might, condemn, might justify condemning certain Israeli policies, condemning the United States. It does not explain um, blanket Holocaust denial, blood libel, the proliferation of the protocols of the elders of Zion, and Mein Kampf in Arabic. Certainly, there is a role for Islamic extremism, which has deep roots in modern Muslim experience and malaise. I think that on a profound and fundamental level, anti-Semitism in the Arab and Muslim world reacts, is, is a reflection of the frustration of Arabs and of Muslims to deal effectively with the challenge of, challenges of Western modernity and to reconcile the message of primacy that they receive through their Islamic readings, uh, to reconcile that with the reality of military and technological backwardness. Anti-Semitism, to my mind, is a sign of Arab thrashing. Uh, it's a symptom of Arab angst. It is also a reflection of the success 
of the region's first Islamic revolutionary regime in Iran, which has long embraced anti-Semitism as its official policy and which serves as a model for Islamic movements everywhere, though it is a, a Shiite government. It, it also inspires uh, Sunni movements uh, that maybe they too can achieve power. Um, and another, I think another important reason for the uh, spread of Arab and Muslim anti-Semitism is the world reaction to it, or rather, the absence until very, very recently of any world reaction to it. Um, the West, much less the United States, has never responded forcibly to uh, expressions of anti-Semitism in the Arab media. There was no strong American rebuttal, for example, when Arafat repeatedly and publicly claimed that Israel was distributing depleted uranium pellets through the Palestinian Authority in order to sterilize Arab men. Absolutely no, record, no reaction whatsoever. There was no strong American or Western reaction um, when the Saudi king lectured the US government on Jewish ritual slaughter. There was hardly any protest over the fact that uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, up to yesterday the Palestinian president, we don't know yet, had written his doctoral dissertation on Holocaust denial or denying the Holocaust. Only now, with the recent proclamations of the Iranian president, Ahmadinejad, denying the Holocaust, again, this is not a new theme in Iranian propaganda at all. It's been around since 1979, but he is coming out and saying it. Um, his willingness to sponsor research uh, denying the Holocaust, uh, an international conference he's now to convene denying the, the Holocaust and calling publicly for Israel to be wiped off the map, only now is there some type of backlash for the West, and clearly now that backlash and tied in to Iran's program of nuclearization and the potential threat which Iran will pose to Europe and the West, not because Iran is anti-Semitic. Uh, and in fact, in just about every other Arab country where there is, are these egregious displays of anti-Semitism, the West in general and the United States in particular uh, routinely ignores them, just simply ignores them. My feeling is that to continue ignoring this type of anti-Semitism will pose an increasing threat, not only to Israel and to the Jewish people, but to the West as a whole, uh, for some of the same defamation that is aimed at Israel and aimed at Jews is also launched at the United States. And I, I call your attention to, a, to an interesting article by one of my colleagues at the Shalem Center, Yossi Kainalevi, who has written a very compelling article on America as the new Jew in, um, in Arab anti-Semitism. And some of the same charges that are leveled at Jews uh, are applied to Americans now in, in, uh, in Arab propaganda. Today, literally today, in the wake of Hamas's landslide victory in the Palestinian elections, uh, and Hamas is an organization that whose, whose propaganda is far worse than Sheikh Mudras's, if you can imagine it, um, in the shadow of Iran's progress toward nuclearization, it's essential that all of us, all of us, regard Muslim and Arab anti-Semitism not as a nuisance or a source of unpleasantness. It's far more than that. It's a symptom of madness and it's one that threatens substantially um, the security and perhaps even the existence of Israel and the security of America and I think of the world as a whole. It is not mere rhetoric. Questions? More time. Hmm? Yes, please. 
can barely hear, there's, a, there's an air conditioning on. You said there's 100,000 Jews in Egypt before the creation of the state of Israel. And the second part of the question was, I can't hear you. No. You, I'm sorry, I'm missing the end of your question every time. If there were no massacres, dot, dot, dot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, good question. The, the, the expressions of Nazi-style anti-Semitism were much greater in Iraq uh, with the Irani uh, revolt in, in Iraq in 1941. Um, there was the, the pro-Nazism in Egypt was much more of an expression of anti-British feeling. Uh, you remember Sadat is arrested and placed in prison. Why is he placed in prison? He writes this memoir, uh, you know, cell without a name, without a number, uh, prisoner without a name, cell without a number. Uh, he's placed in, in prison for, for pro-Nazi activity in, in 1942 as, as Rommel crossed the, re the Western Desert. Um, huge crowds in Egypt you know, demonstrated in, in, in support of, uh, of a German takeover uh, of Egypt and ousting the... Um, and ousting the, the British. Um, so the major focus there was not the Jews, it was a very small community, um, but the British. Um, the Egyptian Jewish community begins to suffer um, at the hands of sort of official oppression after the 1956 war, um, where Israel joined again with Britain and also with France in trying to um, uh, basically destroy the Egyptian army, regain the Suez Canal, oust President Nasser, and there are a number of retribution steps taken against the Egyptian community. Um, Jews are, um, a large number of Jews are arrested, uh, some of them undergo torture, and there is a large-scale exodus of Jews from Egypt. But the major uh, oppression against the Egyptian community clears after the 1967 war, where basically the Egyptian community um, a large share of the Egyptian community was simply ousted, was simply expelled from the country. Um, and there's actually an interesting website uh, posted by former Egyptian Jews which details, I forget the actual uh, URL or whatever it is called um, for it, uh, that details all of the acts of oppression taken by the Egyptian government uh, by, uh, against the Egyptian Jews. I'll move this way, yes. Faisal, right. They did. It's a double hypothesis here. <laughs> Had the agreement stuck, would this have influenced it? Uh, Faisal, first of all, is maybe not is not so. It's a good illustration of all Arab thinking. But um, Faisal was an extraordinary individual. Uh, he had two um, famous meetings 
back in 1919 around the Versailles meeting, around the Versailles conference. One was with uh, Weizmann, another was with Felix Frankfurter, the American. Uh, in both these meetings, Weizmann pledged to work together with Zionism toward creating uh, both an independent Arab state and an independent Jewish state in the Middle East. They, the, the, the interlocutors, the meetings, Weizmann and Frankfurter from the, from the Zionist side, Weizmann, speak, uh, Faisal speaking for the Arabs, uh, saw no contradiction between these two meetings, these two movements, that they would be mutually contra, uh, complementary, that the Jewish state would help modernize uh, the, the Arab world, and it was a, a beautiful dream. But before the conference of, uh, was over, Faisal was already denying that he'd ever made these statements, denying that he'd ever met with these individuals, and uh, it didn't last very long. So it's not really much of a historical platform to base, base a speculative apocalypse on. Alas, uh, we're there. Uh, to this day, in the Arab world, the Faisal uh, Weizmann and Faisal Frankfurter uh, correspondence are, are portrayed as forgeries, as Zionist forgeries in the Arab world. Make for interesting reading, though. Sir? Mm -hmm. Now, today they're indistinguishable. And I made the point that today they're in, in the Arab world today they are indistinguishable. Again, I'll point you to the film. This, this, this sermon was not directed against Israel. It was directed against the Jews. Um, it's interesting, even in Arafat's vocabulary, Arafat never, in his public pronouncements, never used the word Jews. He never used the word Yahud. It, didn't, it wasn't part of his public lexicon for a, a specific diplomatic reason because he did not recognize Israel as the Jewish state. And he, didn't, he, didn't want, he wanted to go on record as not saying that, that Israel would not be the Jewish state in the future. There may be an Israel. He recognized Israel but didn't recognize the Jewish state because that was code for Arafat's demand for the return of refugees, which would then return Israel from a de facto Jewish state in effect to a Palestinian state with the name Israel. In private, though, Arafat never used the word Israel. He only referred to the Jews. And um, this breakdown between Israel and the Jews, the public usage and the private usage breaks down uh, with, the, um, with the Palestinian decision to go to war in the fall of 2000. Uh, and suddenly the PA goes into a, a PA uh, media, PA textbooks, uh, PA sermons uh, go into a mode which is, which is much more recognizable here, and that is um, Israel and Jews are synonymous, and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are indistinguishable. There's no border between them. If anything, Zionism is a tool in the hands of world Jewry for dominating first the Arab world and then the world at large. I know, I know, you know something, my gut feeling is that no. I mean, it's nothing I can, I can base on, of course, again, it's a speculative, we can't know. If Israel didn't exist, would there be this type of anti-Semitism? <sighs> from my experience, from, I'm not an expert on anti-Semitism, but I know that anti-Semitism continues to flourish in the absence of Jews. In countries where there are no Jews, there's still anti-Semitism because there's a need for anti-Semitism. And I, I want to reiterate my, my closing point, and that is that, 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 that anti-Semitism in the Arab world today is a symptom. It's a symptom of profound malaise in this part of the world. This world, this part of the world is not succeeding. It is not meeting the challenge of Western modernity. Somebody else has to be the blame because we can't be the blame, especially since our sources tell us we're superior. How is it we're losing to these people? It must be somebody's fault and it's got to be the Jews' fault. And if even if Israel weren't around, they're 
it's just, again, pure speculation. My guess is that there would still be anti-Semitism, um, and it would still be aimed at this notion of a world Jewry which is um, impossibly weak and yet insurmountably strong in taking us over. Get some in front here. Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, to see it in context, I was talking about, I was giving you an historical continuum why anti-Semitism takes root in state-run propaganda organs of the late 1940s and 1950s. I think that Israel was and remains a reminder, a, a brutal reminder to the Arab world of what a modern state would look like, what a t modern technological, military, militarily um, uh, advanced um, an assertive state looks like it's literally stuck in their craw. And, um, and, and that, that constant humiliation certainly uh, accelerates, exacerbates anti-Semitism. Don't be wrong. I think I, your point is well taken. Definitely well taken. Sir, go Well, it gets out. It gets out. It gets. This 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 film was provided by courtesy of the Memory Organization. Memory Organization simply it disseminates. It records, translates all transmissions from the Arab world or public transmissions from the Arab world. It's not a secret organization. Memory. So it's out there. The question is whether people choose to react to it or not, and they don't. Um, even even the reaction of uh, of the world community to Ahmadinejad's uh, proclamation that he wanted to wipe Israel off the map. The world reacted to it. But relatively speaking, it was a rather muted reaction. What if the government of Iran had said that he wanted to wipe Spain off the map or Italy off the map? What do you think the Europeans would have done then? It, 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 at a certain level, saying that you're going to wipe Israel off the map has become so commonplace that people scarcely react to it. And I, I personally believe the only reason they reacted to it because the man's nuclearizing and, he's threatened and his missiles are in range of Europe. The only reason they're reacting to it. None of this is new. None of what you've seen, none of what Ahmadinejad has said is new at all. It's been in Iran, it's been around since 1979. Um, why aren't they reacting to it? Now you're asking a very fundamental question. Why haven't why hasn't the world reacted to anti-Semitism, large-scale anti-Semitism at various stages in history, including very crucial stages in history? Why did it react in the 1930s? Why didn't it react in the 1880s during the pogroms in Russia? It didn't react. Um, you know, that, these are broader questions that are probably out of my competence to answer, but empirically, I'll tell you, they don't react. And they are not reacting now. You can turn on Egyptian television. Egypt, sir, has made peace with Israel. 
Um, Egypt is not in a state of war, at least ostensibly with Israel, but the Egyptian state organs, their papers, their press, their, their, their official presses for books, their state television are espousing every day constant anti-Semitism of the worst sort. So it's not even a matter of Israel being a, being a military threat. There, hi. Hmm. I believe it. Hmm. Well, one thing, I think the one thing you can do about it, and I, I want to stress about how prevalent, how widespread this is in the Arab world. I, there are not statistics available here. And I can only tell you from, from my own reading of Arabic sources, from my own interviewing around the Arab world, um, that I have at least personally not interviewed anybody who believed in the Arab world who, who, who believed that the Holocaust did happen. For example, Holocaust denial is so universal in the Arab world. There's almost, almost no major Arab intellectual who's standing up and saying, hello, this happened. Or even saying that Holocaust denial is hurting us. There's almost nobody, almost no, there's no dialogue going in the Arab world about this. Um, if I were to say to you that well over 90%, and that may be, that may be cutting it down a bit, well over 90% of the Arabs believe that the Mossad per perpetrated 9-11. That would not be an exaggeration over 90% or that they warned the 4,000 Jews in the World Trade Center to get out in time, they believe it. They actually believe it. About the, is, about the, the Americans and the, and the British flying the jets in the 67 war, absolute blanket, blanket, blanket. Or that the Jews were in, I, I, I had interviewed several Palestinian intellectuals for my six-day war book, and um, I asked them about the six-day war, and, the, and each one of them swore to me that they personally saw the British and French um, mercenaries entering Jerusalem in June 1967. And of course, Israelis could never have done this. They're not even Jewish. They're, they're the descendants of Polish refugees that the Allies didn't know what to do with, so they dumped them in Palestine. These are the Palestinian intellectuals. So what to do about it? Well, first thing you do about it is take a stand against it. First thing you do is every time a state-sponsored, state-owned press, newspaper, television station in the Arab world sponsors something like Horseman without a horse without a horseman, this featured film based on the protocols of the Al Qaeda, that the American government says no, we are not going to accept this. There's a penalty for American taxpayer money being used, but that go that gives that pays Egypt 3.2 billion dollars a year being used to pay for anti-Semitic television programming. It's a problem. You could start right there, but again, no one's doing that. No one's doing that. And, and my point is that this is a threat not only to Israel and the Jews, that ultimately this is a threat to the West itself. Stephen. Almost not negligible. If anybody knows of them, I'm happy to hear. Really, stand up and make it be known. There may be one or two people, few, especially in Egypt, uh, and Jordan is very circumspect because Jordan has close relations with the United States and close relationships on the, on the national level, on the official level with Israel. Uh, and so they're, they're more cautious in Jordan, uh, which also goes to prove that if, if, if a government has a strong interest in clamping down on anti-Semitism, it will clamp down on anti-Semitism. Uh, imams in Jordan do not give sermons like this on Friday afternoon. Um, no. And it, it, to me, it's the most dismaying aspect of the whole thing. It's one thing that, okay, you have anti-Semitism like this, but where are the righteous Arabs here? Where are the righteous Arabs? Um, 
And it's a problem that existed, again, in my historical reading. Um, you know, in, in World War II, when the, um, the Nazis conquered France, June 1941, and later they conquered part of Tunisia, um, the Nazis in Tunisia and the, and the Vichy French in Algeria and Morocco instituted a, a whole set of anti-Jewish laws. Uh, they made Jews wear the yellow star. In certain cases, they began to deport them um, to, uh, to, to work camps. And probably, had the Allies not intervened in North Africa, the fate of North African Jewry would have been similar to that of Greek Jewry. Um, but uh, during this period, there is really with the exception of maybe one exception, there are no righteous Arabs, there are no Muslims who are standing up and defending the Jews. And I'll call your attention to a recent article in, in Commentary Magazine by Rob Satloff of the Washington Institute where he, he asked the question, were there any righteous Arabs in North Africa? And he spent a long time in North Africa looking for righteous Arabs and he didn't find any. Now that's dispiriting and it begs the question, even in Europe, even in Nazi Germany, there were righteous Gentiles. Where are the righteous Arabs? I think, I think, it, I think it, it, it certainly, in the short run, it's going to, uh, this is about the Hamas victory in the elections yesterday. Um, <laughs> I just came, uh, on the way, just about two hours ago, I got a call from the Wall Street Journal, can you give us a thousand words about the Hamas uh, victory? And, and, and the, the, uh, the thesis that I advanced was that the Hamas victory uh, actually had very, it will have very little impact on Israel, either politically or strategically, very little impact on the peace process, which is in any case moribund, uh, but it will have a very big impact on the Palestinians and the Arab world. And um, certainly, um, the, what appears to be a victory for democracy is very much a setback uh, for the Palestinians, a, separate, a setback, uh, I believe, for the Arab world in general. Um, the, the, uh, the impression given, I think it's uh, pretty much reinforces that when, even when given the opportunity to choose freely an open government, they're going to choose a government which in many ways rejects the very foundations of, of democracy, uh, that rejects human rights, that rejects tolerance. Uh, that is a very bleak picture indeed. Um, and uh, the people who are going to suffer the most from it uh, are going to be the Palestinians themselves. Palestinians themselves. And they're going to suffer immediately because even the Europeans are going to find a hard way, going to find it very difficult to, to continue funding um, supplying the salaries for Palestinian functionaries. Uh, and that those funds are, are conditioned on a Palestinian government that accepts, at least in principle, the notion of living side by side with Israel. It's hard to construe that now. Uh, and so the suffering will be immediate and it will be uh, profound and, and unassailable. What's going, what is going to be the Palestinian reaction to that suffering down the line? It's one of the great advantages of being an historian. You only have to predict the past, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The problem is we have, we have, there's a, there's, a theory, there's a theory floating around out there. It's a sort of a Pollyannish theory that somehow if you take a, a radical, if you take an extremist religious organization and stick them in power, they're going to have to moderate because they can't think all the time about, you know, the Jews taking over the world or 
putting, strapping C4 onto some 15-year-old kid and sending him into a restaurant. They can't do that. They have to worry about the, the, the sewers, and they've got to worry about the electricity, and they have to become responsible. The only problem is the Middle East offers us one paradigm, one example of a radical Islamic party that has achieved power, and guess what? They didn't moderate. They became more radical, and soon they're going to be radical with nuclear weapons. Now that is even more, that is even bleaker <laughs> than that scenario. And so I don't know where people seem to, they, they collapse onto this theory that somehow power inherently moderates. It doesn't. And in the West, they should know from their experience from 1935, 1933 to other fine institutions of the East Coast. Um, I, I, have, I, I always dread this question because there's very little, there are few venues open to me to answer it in any ways that's remotely politically correct. Because the answer requires delving into what is readily identified in, in those same August institutions that you mentioned as uh, Orientalist. Um, you cannot delve into that question without talking about the way perception works in the Arab world, or to use that ultimate no-no term, the Arab mind, how it works. Um, and I, I'll, I'll tiptoe around it by saying that um, Arab public opinion in general, not just about questions relating to the Holocaust or who did or did not fly the planes in the Six-Day War, the Arab public opinion often um, um, fulfills uh, the conditions established by F. Scott Fitzgerald for what constitutes a brilliant mind, and that is they're capable of holding two diametrically opposed opinions at the same time. And, um, and we see it all the time. For example, we just had a profound example of it uh, yesterday in the Palestinian elections. The same people who voted in as of today, well over 70% of the Palestinian parliament, Hamas, that same majority, Palestinian majority, is also in favor of, of renewing the peace process. And also in favor of uh, conducting, uh, of reaching some type of a combination with Israel. So on one hand, they're voting for Hamas, and on the other hand, they're saying, ah, we want to have peace with Israel. Now go figure that one out. And that type of contradiction recurs over and over um, in, in public opinion throughout the Arab world. And they see what we see as a contradiction, they don't necessarily see as a contradiction. The Holocaust never happened, but the Jews brought it on themselves. Um, the Mossad perpetrated 9-11 to make Arabs look bad, but bin Laden is a hero for doing it. Uh, they don't see that as a contradiction. Yeah. That's it? I'm just warming up. <laughs> Sir, ma'am, I'm sorry.
Well, there's the old theory of the Jew serving as the canary in the cave for humanity. You know that example. Um, here's another. I, I believe. I very. I strongly believe in that example, and I strongly believe it in this case too. Um, that what, what what's going to take them to break up to wake up? Nothing short of catastrophe. Unfortunately, what you can do to try to avert catastrophe? There's a lot you can do. I do think there's a lot to do. Whether you're a member of a community, whether a synagogue community, a church community, a university community, there are proactive steps that you can take that can, um, that can work to enlighten and to educate. Um, I'm close with a group of people in, in Israel who, who embarked on a pilgrimage with Muslim leaders to Auschwitz. And it was fraught with controversy uh, from all sides, but it, it, it came off. They did it. They did it. And, and an Islamic uh, figure, who, official who, who visits Auschwitz, have a cannot come back and say he denies it. There it is. He's seen Auschwitz. Um, you can also work on the policy level to ensure that the United States government does respond forcibly um, and convincingly to displays of state-run anti-Semitism. They can't, they can't respond to you know, spontaneous anti-Semitism. That's very more difficult, but certainly state-run. And there's no end of it. Hmm? Yes, <laughs> yes, he, and, and they were round, the people, the, the, as you should know, that the, the Muslim officials who, who, who did embark on this uh, pilgrimage were roundly condemned, were roundly condemned, and they haven't really spoken up since then. Again, what will it take to wake up? I don't want to leave you on such a depressing note, but it, um, I'm not real sanguine about it. I'm not real sanguine about waking up. Let me get both of you. One, two, if I have a few more. Right. I've, um, I know what's coming. I read the email yesterday. Not, no, really, there's no mention of the Mufti in the entire... I, I was at the Hogsmeade once many years ago. Yeah. yeah. Or the programs in North Africa. Yeah. Yes, there were. Yeah. Or the visits that the Mufti made to concentration camps, which has actually come to light not too many years ago in, in research, in, in the Italian archives of all places. Um, it's a problem. I agree. I, I read that email with great interest. Um, there should be. But at the same time, and I want to stress this, that um, Arab and Muslim anti-Semitism, Islamic anti-Semitism, should also be put into a historical context. And I, I think I have endeavored today in, in my remarks um, to put it in a historical context, that to see that this is in many ways uh, notions that are imported from the West. Uh, they are in many ways a modern phenomenon. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't roots within the Islamic tradition, within uh, Muslim history, there are. Uh, but to see it in context, and that, that Islamic anti-Semitism is in many ways, Arab anti-Semitism is, is different than European anti-Semitism, certainly different than Nazi anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, good question. What would it take? You have to stop driving SUVs. <laughs> That's for starters. Let me, let me tell you about I, I don't think this, this, there's not a lot you can do about Hamas because um, my guess is, this is, this is also a, a rather dismal thought, that even if America cuts off its, its supply of money to the PA, and even if the Europeans cut off their funding of the PA, uh, PA under Hamas will get funding from elsewhere. And, and that is from the Gulf. Uh, and there won't be any shortage of it. Um, they've, never hurt it for, they've never hurt for funds. Hamas. Um, as for Turkey, interesting case. Turkey, of course, has a, a close strategic relationship with Israel, a close commercial relationship with Israel. You go into any major Turkish bookstore, and the bookstores are lined with the protocols of Elder Zion and Mein Kampf. It's extraordinary and very disturbing. And I think that the, the, the Turkish government has said, okay, we're going to let them have this. We're going to let the Islamists have this, and we're not going to make a big deal out of it. Um, and but you know that that rule, that road of letting them have this, you know where that leads, eventually, and it, it's not a good idea. And I think that uh, to the degree that, that the tension should be called also to the fact that Turkey um, enables um, hate crimes, what would be called a hate crime in this country, um, to be perpetrated on, on a daily basis in the streets is, is a problem for the United States. Have a few, time for a few more. One more. I can think of it now because he was my PA guy here. Hmm. That's an excellent question. Have Israeli Arabs? No, Israeli Arabs do not evince the same degree. The Israel, probably very quietly, the um, the Islamic movement in Israel does because they're reading the same thing that everyone else is reading, and they're watching this TV. This TV is not blocked by Israel, um, um, but Israeli Arabs, uh, without without being filed Judaic, they, uh, they uh, don't engage in the same degree of, of anti-Semitism. They do not, they do not and you don't, and, and even you know, on, a, on a personal level, it's not there. Interesting question, thanks. Thank you. No, no. So, um, just one quick point that I was thinking of while I was listening to the lecture is that if you do a Google search for the Hamas Covenant, please read it because it, the, the, the symbolism and the themes which are intertwined with the protocols of the elders of Zion, it's very clear and it's in black and white. You should read it. So first of all, on behalf of the uh, ISPS seminar series on anti-Semitism, I'd like to thank Dr. Warren very much for participating. It was very kind of him. And he'll be around all semester, which uh, we're fortunate that that's the case. And just to remind you, next week, Ishrad Manji is speaking here in this room at 4.15, which promises to be interesting as well. So thank you very much, Michael.